This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Now, it's been a couple of weeks. It's been about two or three weeks, actually, since we've been in Matthew. We had a special Bible study on January 1. We taught on new beginnings. I had to travel the following week. Reverend Ryder taught uh, really very much still in the, in the vein of red letter studies uh, in John chapter 3, because those were still very much the teachings of Christ. And so that followed right along nicely with what we've been doing. But now we're back. Matthew 16. We finished chapter 15. Now we're in 16. Let's go ahead and begin. The Pharisees also, with the Sadducees, came and tempting, desired him that he should show them a sign from heaven. Well, that's nothing surprising, is it? That sounds just like what the Sadducees and Pharisees were always about. Show us another magic trick, Jesus. Prove to us again that you really are the Messiah that we don't want you to be. And and this comes back to the same kind of mentality that they had and demonstrated over and over and over again. They were doubters. And that's one of that's the Achilles heel of all doubt and of all doubters is that it never has enough proof. It never has enough evidence. It's never satisfied with what it's presented to actually believe that something is the case. People that doubt God's existence you can't give them enough proof. You can try. You can give them trainloads of proof or of evidence, not really proof, but of evidence and things that to the spiritual eyes and to the spiritual mind are more than sufficient for us to, to receive and believe on and accept the facts that, yes, God is real, but they will not accept it. They'll always have a question. And because a lot of times, in fact, maybe even most of the time, they don't want it to be true. They don't want it to be true. Here were the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming and tempting him. And so they asked, they wanted him to show them a sign. Show us a sign that you are the Messiah. Show us a sign that you are the Son of God. Jesus, verse 2, he said, He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. So let's stop right there for a second. Verses 1 through 4 Jesus really just kind of makes a short work of these guys this time. He doesn't engage them in a lengthy teaching. He doesn't engage them uh, in an attempt to, to uh, persuade them or to cater to what they want. And a lot of times Jesus does not, or God, in, in the broader picture, God does not just cater to everybody's whims. Now, sometimes he does if it's in accordance with his plan or if there's a particular reason or if it if it pleases him best to 
to answer what might be regarded as an otherwise frivolous prayer. Sometimes he'll do that. He'll play along. He'll suffer someone, especially if they have the right spirit. And the person that I'm thinking of, the, the person from the Old Testament that comes to mind is, I believe, Gideon. It was Gideon that put a fleece out before the Lord because Gideon had a different spirit. He wasn't tempting God. And this goes back to an earlier teaching about the difference between tempting God and depending on God. Tempting God because that's driven by a spirit of doubt. It's driven by a spirit of unbelief and wanting to prove God wrong. Depending on God is driven by completely the opposite spirit. It's driven by a spirit of faith. It's driven by, by a, a desire to see not God perform some kind of magic trick, but it's a desire to see God fulfill a promise. The entire difference is in the spirit and the motive of the person that's doing the action. Does that make sense? The one is very much negative. And the other one is very much positive. And so Gideon put a fleece out before the Lord uh, and asked God to do a certain thing to show him a sign so that he knew the right thing to do. Not because he was trying to satisfy some doubt-filled and perverse curiosity. The Pharisees, they were the complete opposite of that. Show us a sign, Jesus. And had Jesus shown them a sign, had Jesus clapped his hands and twinkled his nose and the sky turned black and roared with thunder, they still would have found a reason to doubt. They would have said that he did it by uh, Beelzebub or he, they would have said he would have done it by the devil or by the power of the prince of devils or something like that because they did that in another place or other places in the gospel. And so Jesus really just wasn't going to have any part of it. He showed them where they were wrong in verses 2, 3, and 4. And then he left it alone and he walked away. Let's read it again from verse 2. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. Have you ever heard that? It's a, it's a mariner's proverb. It's a seafarer's proverb. Uh, red skies at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning. Red skies at morning, sailors take warning. Because when the sky is a red color, depending on the time of day, it's a big indicator that bad weather is coming or that good weather is coming, depending on the time of day. So he actually uses that. When it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be foul weather today for the sky is red and lowering. And then he spells it out to them. Oh, you hypocrites. Can you, you can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the signs of the times? Now, that might sound harsh and intolerant of our Lord. You're not being very tolerant of these Pharisees and Sadducees, Lord Jesus. You should be more tolerant and nice and graceful with them. Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the various others. He dealt with them according to the condition of their spirit and of their heart. He told them what they needed to hear. And that's something that's important to remember as you study the teachings of Christ and all throughout all four of the Gospels is that with some, he was gracious and kind and long-suffering. And with others, he was straight and stern and did not, he did not truck with fools. I think that's a good phrase that's been used before. He did not truck with fools. He did not cater to it because there's just no winning. You can tell that someone is being a scoffer and a fault finder and someone like that or, or, or something like that. Then 
to engage in a, in a deep and prolonged discussion as though they were actually interested in learning anything. You learn quickly, it's a waste of time. You know when you're dealing with somebody that's just playing you or trying to get a rise out of you or consume all of your time and it doesn't matter what you tell them. You know, learn which is which. But Jesus knew what he was talking about. So he says, you can discern the face of the skies, but can you not discern the signs of the times? What did he mean by that? It was evident, it should have been evident to these doctors of the law, to these religious leaders, whatever sect they were of, it should have been evident to them, knowing the word of God as they should have, what the various conditions of the times they were living in should have been pointing to. And they should have recognized just by the signs of the times, they should have recognized that, yes, indeed, this was, in fact, Jesus, the Lord, the promised Messiah, the Son of Almighty God that had come to them. But they did not. It's like they could tell the weather by looking at it. But they didn't have enough on the ball spiritually to put two and two together in their own understandings. We are dominated by a foreign power. We've been dominated by a string of foreign powers. There are prophecies that speak of all of these things. And here is this one. And oh, what was there was that whole John the Baptist thing that was forerunning and that was uh, that ran ahead of him and that was baptizing people and all Israel went out to see him. I wonder if this means something. But when you don't want something to be true, when you're hoping that it's not true because there's fear or you know that maybe you don't. You don't weigh right in the balances, so to speak. I'm not saying that, I'm not using that as a, as a perfectly accurate metaphor, but when you know that not everything in your life is the way it ought to be between you and God, then you find yourself hoping that things aren't the way that the Word of God says them because you're, it's like what one man said, most atheists, most atheists only hope that there's no hell. It's not that they're really convinced of it. They're just hoping. Boy, I hope there's no hell. Well, why would you say that? Well, because they know that if there is, they are absolutely on rails to that place. And something needs to change. So it was with these guys. And so he says in verse 4, he says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Why? Because a wicked and adulterous generation is full of unbelief. And it's always an unbelieving heart, or almost always an unbelieving heart that seeks after a sign. It's like, here's your sign from God. And that's not from me. That's not even original. That's been on billboards and other places in the country. It's kind of an old saying, but it's very true. You want a sign from God? It's right here in front of you. Look at the Word of God and how it's been compiled and how it's been preserved and, and, and how... It doesn't read like any other kind of religious book or book that puts forth its heroes as being perfect, flawless people. Because the Word of God is true and completely honest, and so it represents even the pillars of faith that we have in here. It represents them honestly for the flawed and occasionally broken people that they actually were. And so who, making something up, would even conjure up heroes like that? No, we would put them out there as being, especially in, in a book that promotes virtue, we would put them forth as absolute models of virtue, wouldn't we? But he didn't do that. So here we have our sign from God, this thing that was compiled and written by many people over thousands of years, preserved against corruption for the most part, and brought to us today in a, in a text that we can rely on and use to inform our life. You want a sign from God? 
Here's a sign from God. And other signs from God. When you first heard the gospel, it sounded like nothing else you ever heard before in your life. It sounded like something that struck you right down in the core of your heart, the deepest part of you. It struck you and it rang true and you knew and then you dared to believe that it could possibly be for you. And when you did that, you grabbed onto it for yourself. And then you either felt the change and it, maybe it was huge and dramatic. Maybe it wasn't so dramatic. Maybe it was just a subtle thing, but it still happened in a moment. This was a conversation that came up in Tulsa last week when I was, uh, when I was uh, visiting with my parents and my brother was down there as well. And uh, the subject came up. And I, not to get too down into the details who all it involved necessarily, but it was taught in a place down there in a certain church down there that um, if there was no real conversion experience, a person could still be a Christian. And uh, both myself and my brother jumped on that and said, uh, no, no, to be a Christian, to be a child of God requires a conversion experience of the heart and of the mind. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a huge light show and it's dramatic and, and God speaks out of heaven and, and the heavens open and the thunders roar and all of that. It's not always a, a, an Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus type of experience. Uh, many times it is very subtle. Many times it's without any kind of fanfare. It's, a, it, it's not always down at an altar of prayer with five people around you holding up your hands in the air and everybody praying as loud as they possibly can and, and all of that. It, it doesn't always happen like that, but it does happen. It might be something just as simple and, uh, and unglorious maybe on the outside as far as anybody watching it might be something as a simple decision of the heart that has been moved by the Holy Ghost upon a person's life just like that but it is an event it is an experience that happens and so all that from talking about signs of the times and a wicked and adulterous generation and a wicked adulterous generation requires a sign uh, a generation that is faithful and believing doesn't need one we don't need the light show. We don't need the signs and the wonders necessarily if we already believe, if we already, if we want to believe. So he says, there shall be no sign given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. Well, who was Jonas? Well, that was Jonah, wasn't it? Same guy that got swallowed by the whale. And so he cut it off right there. He said he left them and departed. And he just he didn't even bother elaborating on what that meant. He just left that and he moved on. And when his disciples, verse 5, when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And we're going to move into another lesson here. Then Jesus said unto them, take heed, because this is right on the heels of the encounter of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have taken no bread. So they were still kind of thinking in the natural very much. Verse 8, And when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves? Because ye have brought no bread. Do ye not yet, do ye not, do ye not yet remember? Sorry, there's a lot of letter Y's in there. Do ye not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves and the five thousand and how many baskets ye took up? 
neither the seven loaves of the four thousand? And how many baskets ye took up? How is it then that ye do not understand that I spake not to you concerning bread, that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And I'll stop right there, because he doesn't, again, he doesn't elaborate. You know, he threw that teaching at the, or he threw that reproof at the Pharisees and Sadducees and then just walked away. Not exactly a mic drop. I don't think that that was the spirit of it. But he just walked away and let them meditate on that. And now with his own disciples, they, not understanding why he's warning them, he says, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right, well, what's leaven? We know what leaven is. Leaven is basically yeast that you put in bread so that the bread will rise. So you're eating bread instead of crackers, right? Unleavened bread is pretty unexciting stuff. Okay, not much to it. Even if you salt it, it's still just, you need something to drink with it, okay? But he's speaking of leaven, but leaven is often used in Scripture as a metaphor for sin, because a little bit of sin corrupts absolutely everything. A little bit of leaven in a lump of bread dough will make the entire, it'll spread like wildfire throughout the, throughout the lump, and it'll cause the entire loaf of bread to rise, and then it comes out looking like a loaf of bread, smelling wonderful. I used to live uh, not far from a bakery in Bellevue, Nebraska, and we would, if you drove past that thing, it was Old Home Bakery, and if you drove past that thing at the right time of day, oh, there is nothing like the smell of especially on a massive commercial scale of fresh baked bread it is totally awesome and it really appeals to you and you just want to go buy a loaf and stuff it down your gullet just like that i don't know what it is about that it almost makes you think that there's a drug involved there's not but you understand what i'm saying but leaven is used as a metaphor for sin because of sin's effect in the life of a person it's not a metaphor i we necessarily have to like okay because bread is good but sin is not. You want your bread to rise? Put some leaven in it. But in where your life is concerned, leaven is like it and unto sin. Well, a little bit of sin spices things up, right? No. No. A little bit of sin introduces corruption into something that is otherwise pure. And we've talked, we've used other metaphors in the past. We've talked about the metaphor, or not a metaphor of water, but you know, a bottle of water. You take one drop of ink and you put one drop of ink in a glass of water or a bottle of water, and you see it kind of go down and then it sort of dissipates and then it's gone. You don't even see it, but it's still in there. And then there, you ask the question to follow that up. Is the water pure? Yes or no? Well, of course not. Just because you don't see the little bit of ink that's in there, just because the little bit of corruption that's in there is not visible, doesn't mean that it has gone away. And many people keep their sins hidden. Their little pet sins. The ones that they do not want to let go of. The ones that they want to keep. And that they want to, well, it's just a little thing. I'm just, it's just my little thing. It's just a little thing. And I'm thinking of one of the old Superman movies. There was a guy that, that, uh, that went on a monologue about that very thing, talking about something else. It's just this one little thing that I'm keeping to myself. It isn't harming anybody else. Well, that's the lie. That's the lie. That's the deception of sin. That when a person sins, they sin unto themselves and it doesn't harm anyone else. It does. It harms everyone else. That that person knows or that person is associated with, or that that person is, shares a community with. Even if you could measure it, even if it only measures, you know, in a measurement so small you can barely detect it, or you can't even detect it, it's still there. 
the harm is still there. He tells his disciples, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And so in the following verses, they're like, is he saying this because we forgot to bring bread? And so he corrects them, says, why reason ye among yourselves because you've brought no bread? Do you not understand, neither remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, neither the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up? He's referring back to the two miracles that were done with the loaves of bread and the fishes and all of that. How is it, verse 11, how is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, but that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? And then, verse 12, the lights came on. It didn't say that the lights came on for the Pharisees and the Sadducees back there in verse uh, 4 and 5. We don't know whether they ever got it or not. But in verse 12, we do know that the disciples then understood. Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said what he was telling them was, beware of their teaching. So brothers and sisters, let me, let me slip this out there. And I've said this individually to different people one-on-one -on -one at various times. Keep your list. In fact, I think two or three people at least in this congregation have mentioned that too, just, uh, just in passing or in, by way of a conversation. Keep your list of trusted teachers very short. Keep it short. Oh, well, I love to listen to all these different radio preachers. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. Because not all of those guys are telling you the truth. And I'm speaking from experience. Some of them, a lot of times, when they just keep it to the gospel basics, they're fine. They talk about salvation. They talk about Jesus. They talk about different things. Some of them will even dare to venture to teach good, holy living, okay? But you got to watch it. Because some of those guys will start, they will, they will promote damnable heresies. Not all of them, not by a million miles, but many of them will. And I, th I think of the one that I, that I used to hear come on the radio every now and again down in Florida, who used to teach people over the airways, thousands of people listening to this guy's deep, sonorous, grandfatherly, trustable, totally trustable voice, telling them, God doesn't save people in churches anymore. The church age is over with. And you're like, what? Where do you get that? That isn't in the Bible. That's nowhere in scriptures. That is nowhere in prophecy. Nowhere. Neither is that even hinted of. If God doesn't save people in churches, and you know, not, not everybody gets saved in a church building, God can save any, someone just about anywhere. People have gotten saved at home. People have gotten saved. I'm pretty sure they've actually gotten saved in bar rooms when they've come to their senses. Sometimes that can happen. God can touch a life and apprehend that person anywhere very well he wants to. Keep your list of trusted teachers short. Because if you listen to a thousand teachers, I can almost guarantee you half to two-thirds of those guys are going to put something out there that is completely out in left field and unbiblical. Keep that list short. Keep it very short. And vet the things that you hear. Test them. Try them by searching the Scriptures. He told 
He told his disciples, beware. He was telling them, beware of the doctrine of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of their teachings. And so why should he even have to warn them of that? Well, because the scribes and the Pharisees were the trusted teachers of their day, weren't they? And there were the priests still. The priests were supposed to be the principal teachers. And the scribes were also uh, the teacher, teachers and, and so on. But these were the trusted religious authorities of their day. And so Jesus just warned them. Watch it. Be careful what you take in. Be careful what you listen to from these guys. Really, be careful what you believe. And as we've said many times, remember, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. Can you find some good teachers on YouTube? Probably but I can't tell you where to go to learn them because I'd rather just take it right from the source material myself. I'd rather learn it right from here myself. And I'd rather learn it from a minister that I know and who has earned my trust. That's where I'd rather learn it from. Let's move on. Then understood they that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Verse 13, when Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist and some Elias and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They gave them various answers that they'd heard from other people. Some said that he was John the Baptist, some Elias or Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And in verse 16, he makes it personal. He asks them, he said, he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, he just came out of left field and nailed it, didn't he? It was like when you're sitting, when you're fellowshipping with somebody, you're at a, you're at a friend's house or family's house and they're all playing, uh, playing one of those uh, games like charades or scategories or something like that. And then somebody just gets it, right? They're drawing the picture on the board or the person's acting it out and they're like, nobody sees it and nobody understands but this one person that's been quiet the whole evening just bing, the light comes on and they're like, that's what that is. That was Simon Peter right here. None of the other guys were thinking, maybe they were thinking it, but they didn't say so. Simon just jumped on it. He pounced. He said, thou art the Christ the son of the living God. In the Hebrew, he would, have, he would have said is the Messiah, the Mashiach, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, verse 17, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. What was he saying? Blessed are you, Simon, because you didn't deduce this yourself. You didn't, you didn't see a wanted poster with my face on it that said, wanted, Jesus the Messiah, okay? You didn't figure it out by looking at my facial features and lining that up with some document that was predicting how I was going to look. You didn't figure it out. It was revealed unto you by the Spirit of God Almighty. The Father Himself has revealed this unto you. He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be, shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, I know that in just two verses, I have opened up a can of worms, haven't I? In verse 19, verse 18 and verse 19, I'm going to read it again. I'm going to just let you all chew on that until next week, okay? For I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's can of worms number one. Because there are those that grab that verse and say, Oh, that means that Jesus was saying that Peter was the rock upon which Jesus was going to build his church. Okay, so quick reveal. No, there are many that believe that, but that is not what Jesus was saying. Now, am I saying that that's a damnable heresy, that somebody believing that is going to is going to split hell wide open when they die? No, of course not. It's just a misunderstanding of what Jesus was, was uh, representing to be the actual foundation stone of the church. We'll talk about that next week. Can of worms number two is verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So why is that a can of worms? Because there are those that believe, the same ones that believe that Peter was the rock upon which the church was built, which is an absurd notion, but it's easy to understand why people would think that given the way that the English here is structured. The same people that believe that take verse 19 to say, wow, he gave Peter the keys of the kingdom. He could like forgive sins and determine who makes it. He made Peter like the divine gatekeeper of the kingdom of heaven. Oh my goodness. We better make sure that we're on Peter's good side. Relax. That's not what that means either. But I've opened up the can. So now the worms are like. So now they're, they're scattering in all directions. Well, then what does it mean? Come back next week. I didn't, even, I didn't even intend that to happen. It's beautiful the way that, that worked. I didn't pace it on purpose that way at all. So we'll cover that next week. We'll cover that next week, verses 18 and 19 specifically, and we'll dig down into it and what they actually mean. But lest I leave you with a head full of question marks, okay? I'll give you the short answer, and then we'll dig into it next week so that it makes sense, okay? So verse 18, I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and especially since the name Peter means a stone, Right? It's derived from the same root word where we get the word Petra or Petrified or Pietro and all these things which speak of things, which speak of rocks or becoming rocks, okay? So he says, thou art Peter or a stone and upon this rock I will build my church. Well, what rock is he talking about? Jesus is described in scripture as being the rock of our salvation or God is referred to as being the rock of our salvation. Who is the foundation of the church? Is it this one fallible man who himself had to get saved? Or was it the Lord who was talking to him, saying, upon this rock? Now, there are some that say that he pointed to himself. We don't really know if he did. We don't have a picture of it there. And the scripture does not say, okay? But it could be read that way as Jesus talking about the temple that was going to be destroyed and three days later being raised up again. But the scripture there explains that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Here the scripture does not elaborate on that. But we can infer, and not wrongly, okay, we can infer knowing who the Lord is that he was talking about himself, not Peter. But we'll dig into that in greater detail next week so it doesn't sound like just a cop-out answer, okay? And then verse 19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's simply a gesture of leadership. 
the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the city, the keys of you name it. It speaks of leadership and of authority and things like that. It didn't make him the divine gatekeeper of heaven itself. So we'll get into that in much greater detail next week. No, if I'm offending anyone, if I'm tearing down your prized saint tonight, okay, we love Peter. Peter did a tremendous work. He doesn't get a whole lot of the credit because Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Peter only has a couple of letters that are in the New Testament, but Peter was one of the first to reach out to the Gentiles, wasn't he? And one of the first to reach out to the Jews. You go back into the book of Acts and read some of the things that Peter did. Yeah, he did a couple of knuckleheaded things, but Peter was key in the establishment of the church of God on earth. And so we'll get into that next. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.